Hello and welcome to the Field Guides. I'm Bill and I'm here with Daniel. Good morning, Daniel. Good morning, Bill. And what we're going to do today and over the course of many future episodes is give you the experience of what it's like to be in the woods, in the field, and on the trail. Each month we pick a natural history topic, research the science behind that topic, and then take you out to a natural spot and share everything that we've learned. And the natural spot we are in today is nothing like where we normally are. So folks, thanks to patrons and supporters of the podcast, Daniel and I are in Southern Florida. <laughs> we are All in right. Everglades National Park. We are currently walking through the Pinelands, just a little bit away from the Big Pine Key Campground. The Long Pine Key oh, Campground. Thank you. <laughs> which is a campground at the Homestead entrance into Everglades National Park. and. That's my favorite campground in the park. So Daniel has been down here for, what, a week? I was at the Big Cypress National Preserve in Southwest Florida for about a week. And uh, then I picked up Bill and some friends at the airport at Fort Lauderdale. And now we are here in Everglades National Park. And Daniel was down here for those days before he picked up myself and the rest of our group. And you were looking for? Today's target species, which is none other than the state animal of Florida itself, the Florida panther. The Florida panther. So that's who we're looking for today. And uh, our chances of actually finding... <laughs> Neil? Oh, yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> but we are hopeful. Uh, Danny, you, I'm sure you'll talk about this during the episode, but Daniel did see some sign, right? I did. Yeah. And it had a potential encounter, but yeah, we can get into that later right. on. So let's describe the landscape around us, because for once, we are not a half an hour away from Buffalo standing in second growth forest. <laughs> yeah. um, the pine lands, folks, this is an area dominated by a species called South Florida slash pine, and it's a relatively open forest around us right now. The slash pine, also called Dade County pine, right, does not get real big. It's what? I mean, the tallest ones around us are maybe, what, 30 feet? 30 feet, yeah. But the undergrowth, the relatively open forest, but the undergrowth is dominated by herbaceous plants, small palms. And this is a, a habitat that relies on fire. So fire has to move through here every now and then to knock back all the lower vegetation because otherwise it will turn into a completely different habitat, the hardwood hammock, dominated by hardwood species. Down here in Florida, it is so different from our typical <laughs> stomping grounds. Here, a change in elevation of just six inches or a foot can create a completely different habitat. So. Yeah, and that's why the Everglades is my favorite place on earth. Yeah. Because you can start at the Long Pine Key Campground and drive 30 miles and see so many different habitats, so many different species, so much different wildlife. Yeah. So the diversity for just one place is amazing. It is amazing. Yeah. And yesterday, while we were driving or hiking, you were talking about how growing up, you thought of the Everglades just as, you know, open kind of L like a marsh yeah. just like a wet area dominated by you know grasses or, or sedges or something yeah. just like one big wet area and when i tell people that i love to camp in the everglades they'd respond with how do you pitch a tent when there's just <laughs> water everywhere because they don't understand that no there are so many different ecosystems within everglades national park right. that you can hike it's not all water but you can paddle as well you can camp it's just it's a great place it's about 1.5 million acres and you will have awesome wildlife encounters when you come here. I've never been disappointed here. Yeah. Not a it, single day. It's not just mosquitoes and swamp, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, if you come in the wet season, the mosquitoes will be a little bit more, but yeah, That's you're true. exactly right. We are here, it's uh, early January, 
for this is supposed to be the dry season and i'm glad you said supposed to be because we've been dealing with a lot of rain and this is at least in my trips i've never seen the water levels like right, this well, here water levels are high so typically during the dry season it's a great time to come down here because the bugs aren't as bad but also since the water isn't high in most areas wildlife congregates in the areas where there is still water correct so yeah. typically during the dry season it's easier to see wildlife absolutely yeah the amount of american alligators you see and the wading birds and such is directly correlated to the water levels but that being said we were kind of concerned that we weren't going to see a ton of wildlife and we have had amazing <laughs> folks yesterday we got to see two barred owls mating like right next to us <laughs> yeah one flew to the other and almost ran into bill's face yeah. <laughs> so we should say some photographers had called them in right it appeared that way because the way the one barred owl flew directly at the photographer and then we did see him calling you know i'm not sure if they found the owls and then called but that might have been why they mated because they might have heard his calling and seen that as like a, a competition or trying to oh, that's do a mating right. call. So you were saying that the owls came in and maybe one of the owls thought that the person was a prospective mate. Yes. So they were trying to kind of stake their claim like, no, I'm going to mate with this owl yeah. first. And that thought came about because I remember Chuck Rosenberg, who we've mentioned on the podcast several times as being just the owl guru. Yeah. Uh, he, when he did, I think it was the first ever owl prowl at Rheinstein Woods and he attempted to call them barred owls. One landed right in front of him, and then another one came and mated with that owl wow. right there. So it was it was similar circumstances, so we just wondered if that was the cause behind that, but yeah. it was awesome. It was incredible. Yeah. And Daytime too, I mean, just like right in front right. of broad daylight, got great right photos. Right along the road. Yeah. Yeah, so folks, if you can, come on down here, check out the Everglades, especially during the dry season, if you can. Yeah, def yeah. emphasis and on that. So we should tell people, when is the dry season typically? It, it begins, in, and there's always variation and such. Around like November is when the dry season starts, and then in like April is when the wet season begins around right. April May okay so and I should point out to folks because it just popped in my head we did invite Steve to come down <laughs> we wish Steve could be here with yeah. us but Steve has a lot going on so he couldn't make it down with us yeah. so you just get Daniel and I today oh, I'm sorry guys <laughs> it's gonna be great so we are gonna be hiking down this Pineland Trail here focusing mostly on the Florida Panther and for once, this is an episode I have not done very much research for, so Daniel's <laughs> going to be doing most of the talking today. I'm going to be asking a lot of questions, trying to provide the color commentary, making the uh, quick-witted comments that Steve is usually That's responsible. That's where we miss Steve. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but I'm sure we'll be talking about a lot of other stuff along the way, because yeah. again, there's just so much to see, so much to find out here about here in the Everglades. So. Yeah, and who knows what we'll encounter on this trail. Exactly. I've seen hawks on this trail, you know, deer, yeah. and we found what we have believed in the past to be panther scat on this trail. Right. So yeah. you never know what we're going to see. All right, so let's walk a little bit. All right. And, you know, we said that our, our chances of seeing a, a Florida panther were likely nil, but why is that? Well, there's a few different reasons behind that. One is that they are critically endangered. So later when we talk a little bit more about their conservation, there's not a lot of them. The current population estimates are anywhere from like 150 to 200. And you know, the Everglades itself is not great habitat for them. So while they are here, and especially in the Pinelands where we are now, they don't really like the lack of tree cover and the wetness that encompasses more of the Everglades. And that is why I went to the Big Cypress National Preserve in Southwest Florida. You have more tree cover there, you have a higher prey abundance, and at places like the Fakahatchee Strand and the Northwest portion of the Big Cypress Preserve, you have a lot more Florida panther. Now even there, <laughs> where there's a lot more of them, your odds of seeing them are very slim. So I remember Mike Owens, who you mentioned is the biologist at Fakahatchee. Was the um, biologist. Was the biologist. Unfortunately, he retired. Yeah. Good for him. But. 
Good for him. Yeah. Bad for everybody else yeah. that goes to Fakachi. <laughs> but um, he mentioned, I think, if I can remember correctly, when I was reading on the website, he said that he saw like 20 of them in 20 years or Whoa. something like that. He averaged like one a year. That's still pretty good. Yeah, I know. Right. Like, that's that's amazing. But he's out there all the time. Right. So the more time yeah. you spend, the more likely you are to see it, right? Yeah. So just thinking, you know, from the listener perspective, how is the Florida Panther different from people I'm sure have heard of mountain lions and pumas and so I don't know if we've talked about it on the podcast before but let's get that out of the way yes I actually my plan was to start with that because a lot of people have heard of Florida panther it is like a a charismatic animal you mentioned it's the state animal of Florida there's a sports team named after. yeah there's a sports team (laughs) named after it and you know there's a lot of drama and controversy and litigation regarding the panther but a lot of people don't really know what it is and like a lot of people think that Florida Panthers are black. When I told my parents that I was going to go on this trip and I was showing them pictures that people have taken of Florida Panther, they're like, what? That, that looks like a, a mountain lion. It, 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 I thought they were black. The quick, simplified answer to what's the difference between the mountain lions that people are more familiar with out west and our Florida Panthers is essentially where they live. Right. Yeah. So but they do look they, they virtually look the, the same. same. Yeah. They are... And we'll get into subspecies later when we get into taxonomy. I don't want to jump into that now. Okay. But mountain lions, cougars, Florida panther, pumas, they're all the same species. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a lot of people don't realize that. It's like woodchuck and groundhog. Different. Yeah. <laughs> Just different common names for the same animal. Different common names for the same animal. Okay. So and that was kind of like a, a shout out to the timber rattlesnake episode we just did. And we mentioned <laughs> that canebrake rattlesnake was the name for the population in the southeast. Florida panthers referred to the pumas that live in Florida. Mm-hmm. And they are the only breeding population east of the Mississippi River. And so right, they are unique. Right now they are just in the Florida Peninsula, right? The breeding population, yes. <laughs> yeah. So when we talk about their behavior a bit, they can wander. Okay. And you know, they can leave the state. So they are allowed. They are allowed. They are allowed. <laughs> well, I should say they're able. They're able. <laughs> yeah. So the Florida panther is a large carnivorous cat species. They're usually described as tawny, which is like an orangish brown color. I say like a deer. No, yeah. They, they no, like that's a, a good the comparison. Same color yeah. as a deer. But there can be some color variation that includes like a palish brown or rusty upper parts, and they usually have like a dull white or buffy undercarriage. They have a long tail, which is like nearly half the total length of the cat. So that's a big feature for identification. And it's like dark brown or blackish at the tip. The back of the ears and the sides of the nose are also dark brown or blackish. And they have large dagger sharp retractable claws (laughs) like other cats and canine teeth that are about 1.25 inches. So they got some serious hardware to them. And they just want to eat you, right? (laughs) Yeah, well, there has never been a documented attack on a human from a Florida panther, unlike other pumas and other places of the united states that's just your tree hugger propaganda (laughs) we know they're out there killing people left and right right? Uh, if if that was the case i would have been a lot more nervous during my nocturnal stakeouts for them (laughs) by myself in the big cypress backcountry well i can't tell you how many people when i said i'm going down to florida what are you going down to florida for to look for florida panthers (laughs) universally the reaction was aren't you you know aren't you worried aren't you no and i had to be like no i'm really not worried at all because one i don't even think we're going to see one yeah (laughs) but secondly no they they're not really looking at people as something to eat yes but that was the the weird kind of mental thing going on in my head i was like well they've never attacked anyone before but if they were 
some guy out in the middle of the woods at night crouching down looking small and a little bit more vulnerable <laughs> like you would probably be the case yeah because that's what i was doing but again odds of seeing one are astronomically small and it's never happened so yeah my and, mind was at ease and that was it's it's never happened with a florida panther with the florida panther right. yes because there are obviously documented mountain lion attacks in other parts of the country and deaths yeah yes right so and speaking of that the one kind of distinction is that the florida panthers tend to be a little bit smaller than mm -hmm. a lot of the pumas out west and that's usually because of the the hotter climates sure. so i think you might have talked about that another episode the benefits of having a smaller mass when you're in warmer climates hotter yes. climates there is a like a name for that uh, there is that named I after a, a researcher a biologist or something yeah i don't remember what we'll put it in the episode notes yeah yeah so males do grow larger than the females the average grown adult male is about 120 pounds but the largest ones can exceed 150 pounds so that's a big cat and they can measure nearly seven feet long from the nose to the tip of their tail seven feet long seven okay feet but the, long. the tail is the pretty tail long. yeah but the tail is very long all right so hang on because we're yeah. <laughs> we came Maybe to a, go left a part in the trail here that's virtually flooded <laughs> so that high water man folks just as we're kind of making our way around this puddle before daniel can get kind of in mic range again most of the substrate here is limestone so again it's so different from where we're normally hiking because it it almost looks like sand mixed with very light colored stone yeah that's a good way to put it yes yeah, yeah. is, is most of what we're walking on here once you get to areas where it's not covered by vegetation so again it's just like being in a completely different environment from what we're used to yeah and then we can take a 10 minute drive down the road and see something totally different that's right from this. yeah, yeah. So <laughs> the adult females will usually weigh around 50 pounds but they can exceed 100 and they normally measure around like six feet long is around the biggest that they'll get now, if you read about Florida panther, you might read things like they have a cowlick on the hair of their back and a crooked tail. I did come, yeah. You came across that? That is not a physical feature to distinguish them from other pumas. That is the result of inbreeding. That's when I came across population. that. Yes. Okay. Yeah. When they have found genetically healthier specimens and after certain measures that they've taken to improve the genetic diversity of the population, they did not find that as much okay baby florida panthers so they're called kittens they have these distinctive spots on them have you ever seen pictures of them they're so cute and they got these blue eyes i just yeah. we watched the documentary which yeah. i'm sure oh. you'll mention oh yeah I'm that was the that. first time i got to see them yeah oh. those dots or spots on them help with camouflage because they're hanging out on the floor of the forest they are adorable <laughs> they really are and it helps them disappear amongst the vegetation there i and feel they like disappear by six months i feel like they're uh if you if you see a panther cub it's like seeing a bear cub where they're so incredibly adorable, but the fact that you're seeing one also kind of strikes terror because you know there's probably a protective mom yes. somewhere very close by. So in uh, the book that I read that was kind of an, an analysis of a lot of the studies that took place in panther captures, when they've located dens, you know, the mother would run off and they would find the kittens. It was always in the back of their mind, like, is it gonna come is out? It gonna... Is it... And uh, they were saying that they never felt threatened from a mother panther and they yeah. thought the mother knew enough like if i lose my kittens i can recycle again and make more if i die and the kittens die right you know so they they are protective but to a certain extent okay yeah so right. they didn't feel like they were going to get killed by going in there <laughs> but there is also multiple of them so yeah. who knows the one thing that i want to mention is that there is another 
carnivorous cat species down here, uh, the bobcat. Yeah. And there can be, although the bobcats are a lot smaller, they're like 35, they can be like 35 pounds. Mm -hmm. They are a lot smaller and their tail is a lot shorter. Those are kind of the two biggest distinctions. Hence the name Bob. Hence the right. name Bob. Because it looks like it's bobbed. Yeah. A lot of panther sightings, sightings right. end up being bobcat. I mean, yeah. that happens a lot because someone sees something at a distance. Exactly. It's hard to judge size and those people are convinced it was yes. a panther. <laughs> I, I can't state enough the significance of misidentifications in the field. Right. And it's just, it's so easy. Lighting, it's hard to tell size at a distance. Totally. It's very, and people don't understand that. Right. And, you know, I heard an example, a picture was taken of a bobcat and it looked a lot like a panther. It was in Florida, but when they analyzed it, the trailing leg of the bobcat from the angle where the photo was taken made it look like a long tail. Uh, so, I mean, these things, yeah. and that was a photo to like, you know, prove that. But if you see that out there and it's the For evening, a split second. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that can certainly happen. That's why every bear sighting, the bear's, you know, 700 pounds. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and every deer's at a 10 point buck, right? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So and then We're no, all guilty of it. And I, I know that because there's times I see a bird and I, I swear it's one species. I mm -hmm. take a picture of it. I zoom in later and it's absolutely not. <laughs> so The bald eagle becomes a chickadee, right? <laughs> so that brings me then to the next thing I wanted to talk about, which I mentioned earlier, the black panther okay. phenomenon. <laughs> I honestly had not heard of this really until I started doing some okay. reading for the episode. Yeah. And I'm thinking, really? I looked into that a little bit because I did want to deconstruct that. Usually when you hear black panther, it's referring to the dark-coated variants of jaguars and leopards due to melanism. So the overproduction of melanin and mm -hmm. you know, all that dark pigment there. These two cats belong to the genus Panthera and they're normally called black panthers. So the Florida panther, which is not really seen, not a lot known about it for most people, you hear panther and you think black cat. Okay. You know, the Carolina Panthers, the NFL football team, I'm not sure what exact species the logo is <laughs> supposed to, to represent yeah. yeah but they do feature a black cat luckily though the florida panthers that we mentioned earlier the nhl hockey team their logo correctly depicts a tawny colored cat but in the book that i read it said they almost had a black cat to feature their logo oh, and man that would have been embarrassing huh so the florida panther that is not in the panthera genus right no their genus is puma Okay. And that's where that name comes from. Okay. So we're going to kind of continue to deconstruct the Black Panther thing and then we're going to hop into range and taxonomy. Awesome. So that was a pretty good little segue there. What also makes that issue more prevalent are these alleged, you know, emphasis on alleged sightings of large black cats or black panthers in the southeast and in the south. And some folks chalk those up as melanistic Florida panthers. Oh, okay. So it's a it's a Florida panther, it just happens to look black because it has melanism. Yes, but the problem with that is there has never been a documented case of melanism in any puma, oh, ever. Okay. But it has been documented in bobcats. So, <laughs> so they're seeing bobcats, <laughs> So they thinking could, it's a black panther. They could maybe. be seeing a large bobcat, maybe a large dog, maybe a Florida panther in poor lighting, or even a black bear. I mean, th these things happen. Or maybe they're just high or drunk. <laughs> yeah, they're having a good time out in the woods. Right. Yeah. yeah. But I don't want to totally rule out the possibility of seeing a melanistic jaguar or leopard that has escaped from like the illegal cat trade, right. especially when you're down here in South Florida. Where nothing 
where I should say everything can survive, yeah. right? And it's hard to say something's impossible right. when you're down here in Florida. So I just want to be sure for the listener, you may have mentioned this and I missed it, but the, the jaguar and the other species, those two species you mentioned in the Panthera genus, they are not here naturally in Southern Florida. They are not, but a, another kind of caveat for that, I don't know a lot about jaguars, but I know that occasionally they have strayed into the South Central United States. Through like Mexico. Like Texas or Arizona, through Mexico, yes. Okay. So, I guess it's not impossible for a melanistic one to do that, and maybe that accounted for a sighting in Texas or something. Okay. We're straying away from where I did my research. Then. Right. Okay. Yeah. It's hard to say things are impossible. So. But as far as we know, there's no black panthers in the southeast. As far as we know. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. So now let's talk about taxonomy and range. So we're going to start with the general species and then we're going to break it down to the subspecies that the Florida panther falls into. So their scientific name for the species is Puma concolor. So okay. what do we think? Two color? Two color? Is it's that close. What? Of uniform color. Oh, okay. So it doesn't have like spots or anything So it's like the total that. opposite. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you said color. So right, I did say close. color there, okay. And for the word Puma, the only thing I can find was mountain lion. Oh, that right. translation. So I don't know if, if that's correct. It just kind of seems like a really specific translation, but a mountain lion of uniform color. Yeah, that's a good sense. description. Yeah. So what's really awesome about these cats is their range, even now, but especially historically, because they've ranged in North America, as far north as Canada, from west coast to east coast. So throughout the United States into Canada, throughout Central America, and throughout South America. That's a huge range. Making it the most widespread mammal in the Western Hemisphere. Whoa. Yeah. That's crazy. I know, isn't it? But are, that's not still their range, is it? Yes, where they can be found in like the Pacific Northwest and up in like Canada, as well as South America. But due to habitat fragmentation, habitat destruction, and extensive human persecution, yeah. their range has you know shrunk <laughs> to certain areas within that. And has been restricted to more remote areas with less human influence, progress, hunting, right. those sorts of things. But often those attacks occur in that wild human interface where people are moving into yes. kind of these, these last refuges of their habitat. And that's when bad things happen. That's when it can happen. Yeah. So we got to find the coexistence with their apex predators, right? Yeah. So, but that massive range is why they have so many different common names. Uh, you know, you hear puma, cougar, mountain lion. You said some word that I've never heard of. Catamount. Catamount, yeah, yeah, I've never heard that. Oh, yeah. Now, they belong to the family Felidae, which are cats, mm -hmm. and then the subfamily within that Felinae. And these are the small cats. <laughs> small. So, like <laughs> pumas, cheetahs, lynxes, okay. ocelots. As opposed to say lions and tigers. Pantheranae, those okay. are the large cats. So okay. African lions, yeah. tigers. So African lions are in Pantheranae, are they? The subfamily. Oh, okay. Yes, okay. the subfamily. But the family Felidae encompasses all of them. Gotcha. So it gets broken down even more. So now let's break it down into subspecies. So the Florida panther, along with all the other pumas in North America, fall under the subspecies Puma concolor cougar, which I've seen that common name usually, at least on iNaturalist, as the North American mountain lion. Okay. I don't know, I just like to say Puma. Right. You know? So Now the interesting thing about that, and another connection with the canebrake rattlesnake, 
is that they used to have their own subspecies designation. I did come across this. Yes, thing. of Puma concolor corii. And I can't remember when, but it was not too long ago that they changed that. And that kind of got some people agitated because they wanted the Florida <laughs> panther to be you know, its, own. its own subspecies. Right. And some continue to use that subspecies designation to this day. But recent genetic studies have said they're just so similar to all the other ones in North America, and I think Central America as well, that they're all puma, concolor, cougar. So right now, all of our mountain lions in North America, and you said even into down into Central America, are considered the same species genetically. Same subspecies. Same subspecies yes. genetically. So the ones down in South America are a different subspecies. Yeah, they're, I think they're Puma concolor concolor. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. Yeah. And But they're all the same species officially. Puma concolor. Okay. Yes. All right. Gotcha. Yeah. And I just want to make sure I get it in my head. So formerly the ones here, the Florida panther, uh, was considered a separate subspecies? Yes, there used to be a lot more. So like Texas cougars had their own uh, subspecies. Okay. The taxonomy of pumas in general is just real muddy. Okay. So when you talk about the historic range of the Florida panther and the taxonomy in general, it gets real muddy. Well, sure, because a lot of subspecies and even species classification historically was based on like appearance, things we could see. Yes. And then genetics has really been, I would say genetics has helped us clear things up, but the fact that all of those historical designations are still out there yeah. and you're able to come across them, that can sometimes muddy the water. You want to be sure that what you're looking at is the most recent For sure. designation. Absolutely. Yeah. But that being said, I want to be sure the audience understands that even though all of the North American and, and some cent the Central American subspecies are considered the same subspecies, there are still some differences. Like you mentioned, the Florida panther is slightly smaller than other uh, mountain lion populations, but that doesn't mean that they're a different subspecies. Correct. Yeah, so I just yeah. want to be sure people got that. Yep. So there can be differences, and it's just not enough to differentiate them into another subspecies. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So while habitat loss and fragmentation are considered the number one reason for the decline of puma numbers and range, human persecution, mostly in the 1800s and early 1900s, played a huge role as well. Many pumas have taken their last breath in a tree surrounded by barking dogs. Yeah. And people are just afraid of them in general or afraid for their livestock. Right, because this southern Florida was big ranching. Yeah, and you know, that's why, it's kind of funny, southern Florida itself is why these pumas were able to cling on. Because pumas in every other place east of the Mississippi River have been extirpated. So when you look at a range map of pumas in the United States, you see the pockets of them in the west and then just one dot in South Florida. <laughs> right. Yeah. And because the swampy, more wild nature of South Florida slowed down human progress right. relative to other places in the east and made it harder to go out and send them to oblivion, right. they were able to cling on. So a lot of people, and this was myself for a long time, thought the Florida panther is this swamp-loving cat. You know, they, that's the environment they love. They're a big swamp cat, but it's, <laughs> it's, that's not the case. It's, right. This is the environment where they weren't driven to the, extinction. The ones where they were left like, well, I guess we got to live here. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, but, you know, being a species that has the range like it does, clearly they're adaptable. Right. Yeah. So that's yeah. why they've been able to survive there. So if Florida had been less swampy, there probably would be no... Florida Panthers left here. Could be, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So thank you for being wild, Florida. I yeah. hope it stays that way. But that's why the uh, Seminole natives were able to cling on too. Because I think the Seminoles were, were the the population that was down here was one of the only groups that didn't sign a treaty. 
I, I don't know. Because they were able to hide out in the swamps of southern Florida and the U.S. government was not able to get to them. So. Yeah, it was interesting hearing about Seminoles and natives in Okefenokee region too yeah. and how it was like the U.S. soldiers just struggle to get through that type right. of environment. You know, they're marching their uniforms and everything in swamp and muck and they're like, what the heck? Yeah, <laughs> we were at the visitor center yesterday, folks, and there were pictures of, you know, in the 1800s, people would nail boards to their boots so they could walk <laughs> through the swamp. And then they, I actually saw swamp horseshoes that were these big metal horseshoes that they would attach to the horseshoes yeah. of shoe, of horses. So then the horses could theoretically, theoretically. Navigate, the, navigate the swamps. I just imagined it'd be, they'd get stuck even worse. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe it works. Maybe yeah. it works. But you got to, man, the perseverance of those people. Because folks, you know, we talked about coming here down here during the dry season. I've never been down here in the Everglades in June or July, but I've just heard like the mosquitoes will carry you off. And yeah. there were so many displays that just seemed to be focused on this is what people did to keep the bugs away. And this is what the people did to keep the bugs away. And this is what the people did. (laughs) Can you imagine? No, my God. (laughs) Even (laughs) folks, you know, we mentioned there's a lot of rain here. The first night we were here, we were taking a hike after some rain. And man, the bugs were, normally bugs don't bother me that much, but there were some times. This is different. Man, yeah. (laughs) They're a little bit different down here. Yeah. Yeah, they were biting through, like, I had an insect repellent shirt. Like, it was like the, like, netting type of stuff. And I had a shirt underneath that, and the mosquitoes, that big cypress, just tore me up. Yeah. <laughs> they mean, were laughing at that. They are biting through it. They're like, oh, I get this weak stuff out of here. <laughs> so by the 1960s, fewer than about 30 Florida panther were estimated to be left. Wow. So and, just take a minute and, and sink, let that sink in. Yeah, 30, 30 individuals. Like, that's a population that's seriously endangered, not just because of numbers, but as we've talked about many times in the podcast, genetics. Genetics. Like, that is a tiny population where there's not enough genetic diversity to withstand like diseases and yeah. threats that you know require some kind of adaptation and some even thought at that point they were gone and at already. what time what when this was is it? like by the 1960s okay yeah because the little bit of research that i did i was surprised to learn that like the 60s and the 70s there were some people that just said they're extinct mm-hmm. they're not out there the sightings that people have just aren't they're probably bobcats yeah. so there were people that were just convinced now they're gone well, think of how few people see them now, and there's like 200. Right. So imagine with and 30. Not, not everybody had a cell phone back then. Right? <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah. That's true. And things would have been even more wild back then right. relative to now. Yeah. I mean, the development in Florida is just an unstoppable machine, it right. seems, unfortunately. One thing that always blows my mind when I talk to people about the Everglades and when I read about the Everglades is that even though the wildlife down here is amazing and it seems so abundant, and we, we saw so much yesterday just in one day, 90% of the bird population here is gone. Like the birds that you see, that's only 10% of what was here, say, 100, 150 years ago. Early accounts of people coming here, the birds were just incredible, the diversity and the numbers. And now it's 10% of what was here historically. It's amazing to think with just how incredible this place is. It's almost overwhelming, all the waiting birds you see and all this yeah. It is nothing compared to how it used to be. Yeah, right? And that's just, it's a sobering thought. It's a weird thought. Now, let's get into some of the natural history here. And the foundation for that really has been radio collars. For such an elusive animal, that's what you need to get data on them. But you have to equip the panthers with the radio collars. So reading about those processes were always interesting. They would use dogs, much like the hunters did when they were wiping them out, to then tree the cat. So the dogs could smell it and pursue the cat. And normally not long after that, the panther's instinct is to climb a tree. Okay. And once it's up in the tree, the biologist would assess how healthy it looks, if it can survive and handle 
you know, the procedure that would come next and they would tranquilize it and then the cat would fall into a crash bag or it would you know pass out in the tree and oh somebody God. would have to climb up there and get it it's like i want to do that that'd be some, fun some poor intern's job <laughs> you'd be all over it though oh my god that would be so much how fun. much do they weigh so well the biggest one from the studies that i was reading was 154 pounds oh god yeah. <laughs> can you imagine getting that out of a tree <laughs> up in a tree and remember it's like passed out so that's like right. dead, dead weight, dead yeah. weight. Yeah. Yeah. so once they then have the cat then they can equip the collar a lot of times they would um give them vaccines and such for certain diseases they do testing and genetic testing as well and there are pretty much i'm sure there's more kind of into this it's more complex but the two main types of collars that I can find were these telemetry collars right. and then the GPS collars. So those telemetry collars, folks, those are the ones where you, you see pictures of someone holding up an antenna yes. and they're waiting for the beeps to get closer together. Yes. So those aren't uh, nearly as specific in locating them as the GPS collars. Yes. But they're a lot cheaper. They're cheaper and they're used a lot more because although you really only can get daytime location data because you do telemetry flights during the daytime, okay. which is why there's a lot of debate over which habitat the panther uses, but they're cheaper, they last a lot longer in the field, and they're more durable. Uh, okay. So think, whenever something goes wrong, you have to recapture that cat. Right. And you want to limit that because you are it is a stressful procedure. Sure. It is pretty invasive. It's needed, but it is pretty invasive. So the GPS collars, while they can provide that nocturnal habitat use data, the battery doesn't last near as long, they're not as durable, so you have to have way more recaptures. Yeah. So until the technology still improves greatly with GPS, the telemetry is still used a lot. I got to imagine how strong a Florida panther is. Those collars have got to be pretty heavy duty. Because whenever I've seen pictures of cats with the collars, I'm always like, man, that collar looks so meaty and so big, but I imagine it has to be. I just know my cats at home, <laughs> like <laughs> when they don't want something on, like they get it off. <laughs> so the habitats, the, the general consensus is, and th this just makes sense, cover, tree cover, expansive tree cover and forests are their most important habitats. Okay. That's what you want to protect. They've kind of argued how exclusive that is. So while it is the consensus that tree cover is the most important part, you know, previous studies have showed that open areas are not really useful to them. Okay. But future studies that have had GPS have showed, no, they do use these open grasslands, drier places. So that's the key. You want a lot of cover and then drier areas. So, so a variety. Yeah, so they aren't this like swamp cat that people think. They can adapt and, and deal with that, especially like when you're in big cypress of the Everglades, there's a lot of that. So that will occupy their territories. They do want those drier forests. Okay. So they really love hardwood hammocks. That's the one they said they would spend their most amount of time in with these telemetry studies. So what they would. So the folks, the hardwood hammocks, we mentioned them at the top of the episode. Those are the highest and driest habitats in the Everglades and really the densest. Like when the first time I came down and walked through a hardwood hammock, my kind of stereotypical picture of a jungle, because yeah. it's like dense undergrowth. It's not a forest that you can walk through. There's just too much uh, undergrowth there. And for an ambush predator, that's what you want. Right. You want that undergrowth. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So they like the dryness there. So they'll also use habitats like pine lands, where we are now. They really like the pine lands and the you know ubiquitous saw palmettos growing underneath that yeah. provides that cover and protection for when they're rearing kittens. But they will use cypress swamps as well, cabbage palm woodlands, but again, they like the drier areas better. Okay. So earlier studies have pretty much dismissed the use of like farmland and, and open fields, but future studies again have shown, you know, drier fields, places where you're gonna see deer, 
are places that are useful to them. Sure. And that just makes sense yeah. that they would use edges because that's what the white-tailed deer like to use. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, it just makes sense that way. You know, it's funny, as you were mentioning, like here in the Pinelands, I think we said that this is, it seems relatively open because, as we said, the trees are relatively, the slash pines kind of spaced out. You can kind of see for a while. But the the growth on the, the floor of the Pinelands it's now that you said that it's like just tall enough for a panther to move through yeah like a panther could be 10 feet off the trail edge here and we wouldn't even know it was there if i had a magic eight ball i would have loved to have asked how close was i to a panther when i was a big <laughs> right. cypress was it three miles or was right. it three feet you know it was like knows? every 10 minutes you were passing a florida <laughs> <laughs> who knows and they're saying knows? look at this guy with the face paint on like oh <laughs> uh, yeah who is this guy full camo getting frustrated with mosquitoes and such so the thing about the panthers too is that they have these humongous home ranges. That's what you always hear about them. And this is why the habitat fragmentation is so detrimental to them. All right. They require a lot of space. So tell people home range. What do you mean by habitat fragmentation? So habitat fragmentation is, you know, say you have a large area of forest and you just take part of it and make a room for houses and then you destroy another part of it to build a supermarket and you just you disrupt and destroy these single unbroken unbroken that's what i was looking for unbroken forest even a road even a road putting a road through a forest that's fragmenting the forest an unbroken piece of habitat into multiple habitats yes and for some animals it's not a huge deal but for other animals that road can be like a wall that they're not going to cross yes and for an animal that moves around a lot and has a huge home range that habitat fragmentation the issues of that is just compounded so tell me if i'm right i read that the the range of a whole a male florida panther 200 square miles 200 square miles or more and that's four times larger than the size of the city of miami so they're needy (laughs) (laughs) which is a problem here and so yeah (laughs) they need a lot of land and land is at a premium yeah yeah yeah, the, and that's the resident, you know, adult male panthers that have a territory. The females don't need as big of a territory. So about like 75. That's and all. It, yeah, <laughs> only 75 square miles yeah. Yeah, for a female panther. Wow. So, and again, there is variation. There is mentions of, you know, like 400 square miles. Wow. So, I mean, it's... They need a lot of habitat. Yeah. The home range will overlap with females a lot more than it does with males. These adult male Florida panthers, the resident males that I mentioned, they patrol this territory, and especially when nearby females are in estrus, they will kill other males that enter that territory. Wow. So they're constantly, they're hunting, but they're patrolling, and they'll just kill other male panthers that venture into it. So the ladies are way more tolerant of each other than the, yes. du- the dudes are. Way more tolerant. <laughs> okay. Like, you, get, you can't stress that enough yeah. there. Yeah. And, in fact, the second leading cause in panther death is intraspecific competition. So wow. panther on panther violence. And number one? vehicle collisions yeah. <laughs> yeah that's why those roads yeah yeah so but i mean that that's just amazing when you hear about these territories there they're so big and you know if you're a young male panther trying to establish a territory you're going through a gauntlet of suburbia of resident males trying to kill you i mean that's why these young panthers can wander right. so far away even into georgia Man. a florida panther was shot and killed in uh, georgia i can't remember what year it was but you know when they did the genetic testing it was from fl- southern florida. florida wow so that it's movement almost, is crucial if only we could convince uh, them to just get along a little better yeah know? just just a little bit more <laughs> that the number two cause of death is florida panthers florida panthers <laughs> yeah and when you read about their territories so in the telemetry data and the studies that they've done it's real crazy how you'll have one territory of you know say 200 square miles and there's a resident male that patrols it 
and whole kill the other males that enter that territory, especially if there's breeding females nearby. But then one day, when he's a little bit older, he'll meet his match. And when another panther kills him, they take almost that exact territory, oh, especially wow. the heart of it. So the analogy that the biologist made was like, and this also happens if a resident male gets hit by a car, then a lucky transient male nearby will just grab into that territory gotcha. and defend it. It's almost like you have a neighbor living on your block, they move out, and then you move into their house and just modify the property lines a little uh, bit. Okay. That was the analogy he made. Okay. And that's pretty amazing. Yeah. And this was done over telemetry studies of five resident males that lived in the Fakahatchee Strand in South Florida from 1981 to 1994. And I mean, and they overlapped the territories and they were just, the heart of it especially was so similar. It really is amazing that way. And then again, the young males will disperse hundreds of miles to find their own home because they're really traveling that gauntlet. And that's why when you're in Florida, you'll see these wildlife underpasses under Alligator Alley, State Road 29 and other places to help these young males you know, go to different habitats and avoid vehicular collisions. Right. And it has helped some. So hunting and activity. So another reason why seeing panthers is something that doesn't happen very often is because they tend to be nocturnal. So they'll still be active at dawn, but that activity does decrease as the day goes on. And usually by midday or even earlier, they're in a saw palmetto place, you know, resting, sleeping. And by evening, that's when they'll awake again and begin their nocturnal activities, which so is traveling to different places and hunting. So we're out here at the worst possible time to see the Florida panther. <laughs> yeah, but even if we were here at the best possible time. True. <laughs> and that's because, and I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to mention, while they are in Everglades National Park, it's not ideal habitat, again, because of just the amount of these open wetlands. Mm -hmm. It's never been a great place for them. And now that you have invasive Burmese pythons here eating all the other mammals, I've, it's made it even worse. Less now. prey for them. Less prey for them. Right. As I mentioned earlier, they are ambush predators, so they really like the cover of darkness and they like the cover of undergrowth, and they ambush. So they'll sneak up on a white-tailed deer or a hog, that's their top two prey animals, and they'll attack it hopefully without the prey even knowing, and it's always a lunge to the throat to kill the animal. Nice, right? Do they yeah. have wild hogs here? So, yes. Non-native. Non-native. Right. Yeah. Okay. It used to be white-tailed deer was the number one prey, but as these hogs just continue to grow in their population, they believe that they're easier to catch than the white-tailed deer. And okay, I can so see that. Made, yeah. <laughs> so they made the transition yeah. from that. But they will eat armadillos, raccoons, and sometimes birds. And when you get to open wetlands, like in the eastern places of Big Cypress and in Everglades National Park, where it's not as good habitat for deer and such, they're going to be eating more of raccoons, sometimes American alligators, and chill. you know, otters. <laughs> and chill. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So it was always interesting because, you know, when I'm crouched down in the woods waiting for a panther to come by, a catbird would be really loud, like in the shrubs to my right. I'm like, what is that? And, uh, so the catbirds were messing with me. In one scat survey that they did, they even found the remains of a bear cub. Whoa. That was in the Everglades because oh they got to, you know, widen their prey selection. Sure. In the Everglades and places like that, they also have a wider home range because they need to travel more to find adequate prey. Right. And you'll hear about pumas caching their prey. They do that here, but they can't hold the prey cached as long as the other pumas out west in colder climates because of the Florida sun. It'll right. spoil the food. It spoils too yeah. quickly, yeah. So, yeah, again, the panthers are more productive, they produce more young, and they have smaller home ranges where food is abundant. They will hunt livestock, and pets, 
especially in places like the Golden Gates Estates where you have, you know, I just saw a video that came out a couple months ago of a panther peeking through a, a woman's, I don't know if you saw, it's like a sliding glass door yeah. of her house. Oh, I did see I'm that. like, man, this this person could be just watching TV <laughs> and, and they got a panther sighting. You're super jealous I, of it, right? I'm super jealous, yeah, <laughs> I, I'll admit it, I'll admit it. And I, I didn't look into that too much because it's not as, you know, polarizing as the topic of like wolves with livestock. But there is a website called Panther Pulse, and they list all the deaths of panthers documented. And you look, and it's all—it's like vehicle, 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 other panther, vehicle, 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 and uh, also documented depredations. Okay. So if you want to get a sense for how, what they're doing, that Panther Pulse is a good source. How for much that. livestock is being yeah, taken? Yeah, okay. li livestock and you know pets as well. Okay. Because it has happened, but it's not as polarizing again as the wolf issue. Okay. So breeding. What is kind of helpful to the Florida Panthers is they don't have a specific breeding season, but they usually tend to breed in the late fall and winter and then give birth to the kittens in the springtime. Okay. The females in estrus will leave scrapes and scents as well as produce pheromones that will signal to nearby males. And this will increase the testosterone production in males and really rev them up. So if another male enters their territory then, oh, that's when they're okay. a lot more likely to more then aggressive. attack or kill it. The gestation period is about three months and they can have you know anywhere from one to four kittens, although two, according to the studies, appears to be the average. And the kittens will live in a stationary den for about 50 or so days until they are grown enough to travel with their mother while she hunts. So, and as the kittens get more developed, the mother can travel a little bit more and they stay with her for, you know, about a year and a half. And then they venture off onto their own. Are there dens, are they like, excavating a den or are they just using like Bro, yeah they're just using vegetation okay. so saw palmettos was the biggest one for that i mean just look how impenetrable that is yeah and you, anybody in there you you wouldn't be able to see until you're right up to it so folks we're standing next this is saw palmetto right here right um, no this is not this so is not. this is a different kind of palm but different kind saw palmetto uh when it is growing there's usually grows at least starting out it's relatively short yes right so maybe as tall as a person, lots of leaves though. And then the blades of the fronds have sharp spines sharp. on them. Yeah, yeah very it hurts sharp. to walk through it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a good place to, to hide out. Males, they think require about to be three years old to reproduce and they have to disperse and find an area to be able to do it. And the females, they found to reproduce before they're two years of age. Okay. So that's reproduction. And what's the lifespan? That, that one was tough to find. Okay. So it might be out there, but that's one that I didn't come across. Sure. I thought of that recently. We'll try to look yeah. that up and put that in the episode notes. Yeah. I'm going to say uh, 20 to 30 years. 20 to 30 <laughs> years. I think I read 20, but it was on, who knows. I was trying to find it like mentioned in a research paper or something like that. Otherwise, it's a total guess. To sounds good. So with that in mind, those are the places I tried to find when I went looking for them. And after days of maybe finding a track here or there towards the end of my trip, I found a trail that was dry and surrounded by cypress swamp. So I figured, okay, they'll use this to stay dry. Hang on one sec. So give people an idea. What does a cypress swamp look like? <laughs> Good call, Bill. <laughs> cypress trees are a dominant tree that you find down in the southeast especially, and they really thrive in wet habitats. So you have these large cypress trees that are growing in standing water. So you can be walking in a cypress forest, but be knee deeper more in water. So panthers will use them but again, they like the drier spots. Okay. So this trail that was a little bit higher in elevation was a lot drier, it had more cover, so I just thought they would be using this. And when I got there, there was panther tracks going up and down it, and bear tracks. So how'd you know a panther track? So 
it, it looks just like a bobcat track, but it's way bigger. I mean, these tracks are the size, they say like the size of a baseball All right, or so, larger. But what if people don't know what so, a bobcat track looks like? They have. <laughs> I'm getting there. <laughs> okay, I'm getting okay. there. Right. The, the four toes that you see, think of like a dog print. It's somewhere that way, but they don't have the claws. Because it's more, them, more like round than a dog. Track. More round. And then I guess you would say the, the pad at the bottom of the paw print has three lobes. And then the on top the bottom, part of it, right? on the bottom, yeah. yeah, on the bottom part of it there. And then the top part of that pad, there's like one, well, I guess there's one crease, so it would be two lobes. Okay. Yeah, so those lobes, that's an indication of a cat. I was reading one description. It said like the space between the toes and the pad, it was like, was it a C or something like yeah, that? Yeah, it, it looks like a C. Kind of like a C-like shape. And the, the toes are asymmetrical. Okay. That's a, another one too. When you think of a dog track, they tend to be maybe a little bit more symmetrical. Mm -hmm. And but a dog track's more oval, where this is more round. More round. And so you said the the panther track was as big as a, a about a baseball. It's okay. like a rough. All right. But and a bobcat would be what like? Uh, I think they say like a, a silver dollar. Or something. Okay. I can't remember what racquetball. Yeah. <laughs> to keep that ball analogy going, yeah. so, smaller. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. these were huge, and they were in mud, but they were very large tracks. And why can't you see? Uh, any claw marks in it from, i'm betting some of our listeners know but for yeah. those that don't I, they retract them okay did you to mention keep them sharp i did oh, okay yeah but canines cannot no they can't so very often if you see the claw marks and it's more of an oblong track you're probably looking at a canine track whereas because i did read that when they are chasing something sometimes the claw marks are visible in a florida panther track for like grip and yeah. such while they're running and probably just in preparation for the kill yeah but typically no yeah because they use them to kill and, and hunt unlike canines so they want to keep them sharp yeah. and if you're just walking on these places all the time with their claws out it's going to reduce their sharpness there right. so what i did was i followed this path and i'm like hopefully it'll lead to some kind of a hammock or something and it led to this awesome looking pine forest and i was like man this is great habitat for them and there's tracks everywhere it was dry there's saw palmettos so my last two stakeouts, which is when I'd sit down and probably look silly in full camo, face paint, all that stuff with my camera. And what time of day was this? I would get there at like 5 a.m. And then when I'd go in the afternoon, I'd get there at like 3 and stay till darkness. Okay. I did hear it was definitely a cat, probably about 30 yards left of me. It was like a, a raspy, like a meow, meow, but like really raspy and kind of scary. Yeah. <laughs> and I know that bobcats make a similar sound, but that pumas do that as well. So, but it very well could have been a panther. Sure, okay. There were tracks everywhere and it was a great habitat surrounded by a lot of areas where they probably wouldn't want to be. So some kind of wildcat. So huh? I'll take that. I'll certainly <laughs> take that. I didn't even know if I was going to find tracks. Right. So, I mean, Hey, you found tracks and you said you find scat. I did not find scat. You didn't find any scat but yeah. you found tracks and you heard a wildcat. So yeah. 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 And it was, you know, you can go out in big cypress and see nothing and have a great time. Yeah. You know, it's fundamentally a cool place. So how many days were you out there for? Um, I was out there for four nights. Okay. Yeah, so for wow. about five days. Very yeah. cool. Solo camping, and it was a lot of fun. Saw a lot of owls, you know, wading birds, alligators. So it was a great time. It was good to spend some solitude in the woods. So I'm sure people at home are thinking, like, weren't you scared of alligators getting here? <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. No, I was not. <laughs> Why? So Because we are not the ideal prey for American alligators. Right. Yeah, and a lot of people think we are because... When you're living where we are, up north, the only time you hear about them is when they do end up attacking somebody. Mm -hmm. But when you look at these attacks, it's always, it's, I don't want to say always, it's usually, the vast majority of cases, a habituated 
you know, larger alligator that has been fed by people. Because when an alligator is being fed by people, they stop looking at a human as, ooh, that's scary, to I get food whenever I see this thing. Right. And they lose their natural fear of humans, and that's when things can happen. But when you're in these more wild places where that isn't happening, you know, it's not a retention pond in a suburb in Florida or somewhere, they retain that natural fear a lot more. And that's what we want. That's what we want, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Same with bears. Right. Well, it's the same Don't thing. Don't feed them, keep them wild. Don't yeah. feed them. And it's people, like when I worked at Okefenokee, it was always taking people out to see alligators. And they go in there with that fear. And like some people, are they going to attack the boat? Are they going to jump in the boat and try to eat us? <laughs> and we were at a refuge where they, other than the alligators around the boat basin that steal the fish people catch on their poles, yeah. you know, they're afraid of us. I mean, I'll be in a, a canoe and I paddled right next to this one that was like 11 feet long. And I didn't know he was there until I was right next to him. Right. And it does get your heart rate up sure. a little bit. Yeah. And you know, you're in a narrow path, but just want nothing to do with you. Right. Now that gator could easily if he wanted to, but... You know, you just understand that they don't want to. And it's the same with the panther, and it's the same with the Florida black bear. So as much as when you're out at night by yourself, it was intimidating. Sure. You know, it was a little a little nerve-wracking, but I was reassured by those What notions. you know, yeah. Yeah, and, and I don't want to downplay the fact that these animals, when you're close to them, it is natural to, to be apprehensive. Because yeah. the other night we were out and we saw a 10-foot alligator, you know, in a, in a little ditch alongside the road, and getting close to it, like it's just naturally like whoa like this yeah. thing could make a quick meal out of me if it wanted to if it wanted to yeah but you know you got to remind yourself yeah. that these animals aren't here to eat us they're not looking at us as, as prey species yeah uh, as, typically as, as much as we want to talk about that you do have to say admire from a distance right be respectful because again nothing's impossible and it has happened in certain situations with black bears pumas and alligators right so admire from a distance don't be like the tourist in Yellowstone with the bison. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, all right, so now we'll just get to kind of towards the end of the things we want to talk about here, some of the conservation and threats that the panthers still continue to face today. Okay. Um, in 1967, that's when they were federally listed as endangered. So that must have, they must have been listed under the precursor to the Endangered Species Act because that came out in 73. So I know there were some protections okay. ahead of that. So okay. I, yeah, so okay. Me, all right. Yeah. Thanks for clarifying that because yeah. I would not have known. The only reason I remember when the Endangered Species Act was passed is because that's the year I was born. Oh, there you go. There you go. <laughs> so that just sticks in my head. We did just celebrate Bill's 50th birthday. We did. Happy late birthday, Bill. <laughs> Thank you. It was wonderful. <laughs> it was. So, and again, by the 1960s, there were fewer than like 30 of them. Now they were helped a little bit by the establishments of the Big Cypress National Preserve as a you know wild place in 1937. Parts of the Fakahatchee Strand Preserve Park were acquired in 1974. Everglades National Park was acquired in 1947, but these were they didn't help too much. By the 90s, they thought that there was about 50 or so left, and that they were a very poor genetic diversity, and a lot of models predicted inevitable extinction. So this led to the single most significant conservation action in 1995, which is when they introduced eight female pumas from Texas into South Florida to breed with the remaining males to increase the genetic diversity. And they selected those pumas because historically, the pumas living around Florida would have ventured into that area sure. and vice versa. There would have been some overlap. This did get some pushback because when you start getting into the weeds of things, is it now a Florida panther now that it has Texas puma DNA mixed in? Right. But when you look at what happened and that the population started to grow after that to what it is now today around maybe 200 individuals or so, it's hard to deny 
that that was a win. And wasn't the um, the kinked tail and the cowlick, weren't those genetic abnormalities yes. brought about because of inbreeding? Because of inbreeding. Okay, so you mentioned those earlier in the episode, and that's why those stuck in my head. Yes. So they were seeing evidence of that. And if you saw a puma with those, that's a puma that was suffering from inbreeding. Yes. Yeah, at least there, to some degree. There's also, there was an issue with having only one, like, descended testes. Oh. So that would cause the sperm to become too warm in the body and die, and that may have affected reproduction as well. Yeah, there's so many things that can crop up because of inbreeding. So how many did they introduce? Eight? Eight. Eight. Yeah, eight. So it's not like they're just going to totally swamp out the Florida panther genetics, right? And And, and you mentioned that it was debated at that time of whether they should do that. And at that time in the 90s, like DNA testing of of genetics wasn't as far along. Yes. So I imagine there were a lot more people that kind of had it in their head. This is a different panther here in Florida. A different and they were uh, different subspecies back then as well right so i'm sure there were a lot of people that said no you're gonna muddy this population too much but i feel like based on the limited information that i have that dna kind of proved that it was okay they're yes. really not that different genetically yes so this shot of new genetics from texas made this population healthier well it, the population started growing yeah. as a result and some conservationists and biologists did argue against it as well because they thought it was putting a band-aid on the overall problem of lack of suitable habitat in space. Sure. It's like, yeah, you're improving the genetic diversity in these limited suitable areas, but it's just going to result in that same issue again. Yeah, I can see that, but at the same time, I'm like, well, you even if... got to do something now, they're struggling. But yeah. I would even say, even if the opposite argument was, well, let's say you could wave a magic wand and take care of the habitat issue. Mm-hmm. You still have the genetic issue. Exactly. Right? Yeah. There's also a study that I came across where they utilized telemetry data, data from live kitten captures and genetics and modeling, and they assessed survival rate of kittens. And they had a bunch of different like genetic cohorts. Cause here's the other crazy thing about the Florida Panther. I think it was 1986 when they did the first ever capture of one in the Everglades. They found a genetically healthy specimen that looked different than the genetically defect ones in Southwest Florida. And they were puzzled by that. And from genetic sampling, they found it had ancestry from Central American pumas. What? (laughs) I've heard different things. In the book from the biologist that I read, there was a roadside attraction in the 1950s and 60s that had pumas from Central America and they either released them at one point or they escaped, but that put a little bit of genetic ingression of Central American. I've also heard that it was sportsmen that knew the panther were struggling and took matters into their own hands and imported Central American pumas into Homestead. Because Homestead was a huge importation. That's why it's like the Black Panther things are are possible. That's true. Yeah. There was a lot of... Think of the pythons, Mm -hmm. you know, was around that area. Um, Nile crocodiles have been found uh, outside of Homestead. Wow. So, but that's crazy. So, like, the Everglades Panthers have a little bit of this Central American ancestry to it. Wow. So, they assess this... So it, it really is. It's it's amazing. And when you get into the genetics and the taxonomy, it is a mess. Yeah. So it's hard to break that down. We just did as best we can. When you get into survival rate, the ones under the model with the highest survival rating were the offspring of a traditional Florida panther male and one of the original Texas pumas, their oh, offspring. Okay. They had the most genetic richness and the highest survival rate. So okay. between the studies from this expansive model, resulting from telemetry data on captures from 1982 to 2008. Wow, that's a nice you know, spread. 
between that and the population expansion, it is hard to deny the success of that introduction of the eight rivers. Right. So we still have the issue of habitat encroachment yes. and fragmentation, but the genetic issue seems to be in a good place. It's better. But, I mean, when you look at Florida, even before all the extirpation and the hunting and the habitat loss, they're on a peninsula, and, you know, you got Lake Okeechobee and, and the waterways that spread off of it. So they were isolated. So there's probably a little bit of inbreeding that went on even when their populations right. were healthy. But and also, too, when they dredged the Caloosahatchee River, which flows pretty much out of the west side of Lake Okeechobee, which is like, would you say, like in the middle of South Florida, maybe yeah. two-thirds of the way if down kind of look state. at the, yeah. break the peninsula into two and look at the bottom half. Yeah. Yeah, Lake Okeechobee. So just tell people real quick, why is Lake Okeechobee, like, what is it? Why is it so important? Traditionally, it was the like the source of water for the Everglades. Yeah, they call it the heart of the Everglades. Flow down through into South Florida, but why I brought it up was the Caloosahatchee River. They widened it out, so it made an almost impassable barrier to make them even more restricted yeah. into the South. And I think it was in 2018, but for the first time, and I think it was like 40 years, a breeding female with kittens was found north of the Caloosahatchee River. And they so they figure a female and. A Probably female made the, the swim across swim the river. Swim across it, wow. There had already been males, and, you know, the males, because oh, they're the ones okay. that disperse. Right. But it's about, you know, the breeding population. Sure. So that was a huge win. Yeah. Wow, I bet she was popular. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, she swam the river. Yeah. So if you look at panther pulse, in 2023, you had 13 vehicular deaths, but that was low. In 2022, there was 27, oh, and man. in 2021, there was 21. So that's about 10% of the population. I was just going to say, like, yeah. Like just thinking of those numbers randomly, eh, that doesn't seem that much, but when you only have 200 yeah. maybe cats, that's, yeah. yeah. Wow. Now, kind of the sad thing, it was hard to find information on this because this is kind of a recent thing, but they thought that perhaps the decrease in vehicular collisions this year was because the population's lower than anticipated. And they've been finding evidence of this uh, disorder, I, I'm going to butcher this, it's like feline leukomyelopathy. Oh, and it affects is... their hind legs. So it, it might be people just kind of jumping the ship on this, but they're like, oh, not as many got killed by cars. There's not as many out there. We're finding evidence of this disorder. So their population's even lower than we thought. Hopefully that's not the case. Okay. But I couldn't really find any study uh, about that. Okay. Yeah, lots of vehicular collisions. Maybe so people they... are just driving better. <laughs> yeah. Well, I thought, you know, maybe the wildlife underpasses, they're using them more. Yeah, I, I, know. I don't know. It's definitely not people driving better. When I was driving to my stakeouts on State Road 29, I had people shining their brights behind me. There's, there's, you know, flashing panther signs up and down the road, and I'm getting tailgated, and people are honking at me and all this stuff. They so, can tell you're a tree hugger. Yeah, I guess so. Like, yeah, drive slow. You're in a panther area. So I did want to end on a really positive note, though about the Florida Panther here, and that's this project of the Florida Wildlife Corridor. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, so in 2021, the Florida legislature created the Florida Wildlife Corridor Act, which funds, encourages, and promotes investments into areas to protect and enhance the Florida Wildlife Corridor, which is about an 18 million acre space, which is a patchwork of various habitats and lands to connect from South Florida all the way up to North Florida, Yeah. again to Georgia. And it involves easements, it involves cooperation with private landowners and ranches to just create this big wild space that yeah. panthers can hopefully utilize to expand their range. And not just panthers. Yeah, every, right? that's I mean, when you oh, protect well, the panther, you protect everybody. Yep. Folks, a lot of uh, you know conservation efforts in the past 10, even 20 years have been focused on connectivity and trying to create yeah. networks of wild lands. And a lot of people, when they, they hear about this, oh, we're trying to create this 
wildlife corridor of, of connected lands, they think, oh, you know, the government's going to come in and, and take all this land. But a lot of it is established, as you th said, through easements, which are private lands where landowners have agreed not to develop their property, often for things like tax breaks and other advantages that they can get. So like if you out there, if you have a piece of property that has some significant ecological value, you can contact like a local land trust and see about getting a conservation easement placed on your property where you can still use that property and it's your property to do with what you will. Just the development rights are now going to be owned by the land trust and they will keep it, then they say, in perpetuity. So that land will remain wild. Mm. And if it's within a corridor, it could be like a valuable piece of connecting lands. Yeah. So enticing people to have and maintain good habitat for panther and other wildlife yeah. and, you know, subsidizing and helping that as opposed to regulations and, pun you know, in quotes, punishing people for living on good panther habitat. Right. That's the way they see it. And, you know, that's a complex issue, but that's the way to go. Yeah. And, and a lot of people, they want, I mean, it's the state animal of Florida and right. a lot of people want this animal to increase in range and, and prosper. So that is an awesome project. Are you going to talk about the, so, the documentary? That's what I was going to say. <laughs> if you wanted to learn more about this project and learn about the panther in general and see some absolutely stunning oh my God. footage and photos taken by Carlton Ward of Florida Panther. Um, it's by Nat Geo, but it's on Disney Plus, I think. It's on Disney Plus and Hulu right now. Disney Plus and Hulu. It's called Path of the Panther. And oh my gosh. Oh, the photos they got, the video they got. Yeah. Unbelievable. He Best was, pictures I've ever seen. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. And, and video. And the video and it just bears and all that stuff too. And yeah. and they just, they talked about the issues the Panther faced. They talked about the, the wildlife corridor and such. So it was, it's a great way to really understand what's happening with the Panther in South Florida. And I love how they, they talked to ranchers and the one rancher yeah. was like, you know, for so long, ranchers saw the panther as the enemy, but he saw it now as like, when we're saving habitat for panthers, like we're saving ranchers. Yeah. Cause that's habitat yeah. for ranching too. <laughs> it's like, we got to work together. It right. shouldn't be this, this thing. Yeah. Like... And it, it was really like, it was an uplifting documentary. A lot of times wildlife documentaries are depressing, but I felt like this one was, it showed like a lot of good things that are happening. They yeah. had proposed a toll road the state of Florida had proposed a toll road going through prime panther habitat and people in Florida decided, no, we don't want that. Yeah. I couldn't, I, when I saw that part of the documentary and mentioned the toll road, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is going to be so depressing. I know. But then to find that, nope, they decided we're not going to put it in. They blocked it. Yeah, yeah. It was amazing. It really is. It was so nice that, to get some good news. Yeah. Yeah. So it looks like there may be a, a good future for our Florida panther. Yeah. Awesome. So, so that's everything you got? That's everything All right. Got. Beautiful. Thank you for, uh, for taking this on. For risking your life not really <laughs> <laughs> but honestly thank you for coming down here because since daniel came down i was able to come down here too. well i'm glad you came down yeah. and thanks for putting up with me and camping my friends and everything like that it's so. been incredible yeah. <laughs> so we're gonna be down here for, i'm gonna be down here for a couple more days daniel's gonna be down here for several more days yes but as i'm talking i'm realized i'm realizing i'm so used to doing the research and prepping all the stuff i did not prep an outro oh okay so i did not get a list of our current patrons and all that so okay. what i'll have to do is i'll have to put that together afterwards yeah and then i'll get that to you because daniel is going to edit this episode it's going to be his first one yay <laughs> so if the next don't. one's a little wonky you know don't blame bill <laughs> <laughs> that's right it's not my fault um but i do want to say especially to our patrons and all our supporters thank you so much for your continued support for being patient with us because i know we're not releasing uh, episodes on a regular basis but your support 
made this trip possible. We could not be standing here recording this. You wouldn't be listening to this without your support. So thank you so much for that, folks. Thank you. And we will see you next time. Stick around for the outro notes and um, look for our next episode, hopefully very soon. All right, see you, folks. Bye. Hello, everyone. Steve here. So I wasn't able to join the guys on this last episode. So I'm out here on a walk in my hometown. A beautiful 50 degree night. I can see plenty of stars. I'm looking at Orion's belt right now. Uh, and I'm just gonna wrap up the episode for you. So first, let's do a couple shout outs. So last episode, Bill completely forgot to thank listener Sophie S, who originally emailed the idea for the Timber Rattlesnake episode. She's an educator at Denison Pequot Sipos Nature Center. Bill tried to get me on that, but I think I said it right. And that's in Mystic, Connecticut. And she was kind enough to invite us out to check out the Nature Center and their rehab animals. So thank you, Sophie, for both your email and the great work you're doing. Um, also, Sung, a grad student studying ecology in South Korea, uh, they sent us an email from the other side of the world letting us know how much they've been enjoying the podcast. So thank you for listening, Sung, and best of luck with your degree. So we'd also like to thank our growing list of Patreon supporters. So thank you to our new patrons, Chris N., Hot Dog, Cold Weather, <laughs> uh, Dennis, uh, and Dr. Judy. So special thanks to her also for letting us know that the FAB, F-A-B, in the anti-venom crow FAB meant... Um, and remember we joked about it uh, meaning fabulous well this is what dr judith said the fab part means fragments of antibodies so fab fragments of antibodies they are y-shaped and the top part of the y is the active site that recognizes the antigen or the venom oh my god i said venom bill's getting to me the venom proteins (laughs) whereas the stem is more likely to cause hypersensitivity reactions so they try to remove those if possible Yes, so thank you very much for her uh, pointing that out. So each episode, we like to give a special shout out to our top patrons. So stick around for the end of the episode to hear Bill's daughter, Violet, share that list. And remember, if you'd like to be part of the Field Guides and read our patron list in the future, uh, email us at thefieldguides@gmail.com. And if you'd like to support the podcast, consider becoming a patron of our show at patreon.com. As a patron, you'll get access to a special patrons-only version of our episode that include us sharing the episode notes. Because of support from our listeners, we've been able to keep the show free and make cooler episodes like this one. Or you can make a one-time donation through PayPal on our website. A big field guides thank you to Tracy T. and Mark B. for their generous donations in January. Um, And don't forget that we have Field Guides merch available through our website store at thefieldguidespodcast.com. And remember, if you can't financially support the podcast, you can help out by sharing it with friends and family and by subscribing and leaving us a review wherever you get our podcasts. It helps spread the word and allows us to reach a wider audience. We'd like to thank our newest iTunes reviewers, or reviewer, N.C. Geeslin or N.C.G. Eastlin. Well, either way, come enjoy our periodic posts on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and you can always email us ideas for episode topics, criticisms, or your own stories of personal encounters with, a, with, with the Florida man uh, to thefieldguides at gmail.com. So this must have been something that came up in the episode, and I'm looking forward to finding out myself. All right, so thank you guys, and here's Violet with the list of our top patrons. Chartuterie, Eric, Alyssa, Adam, the Hebranks, Mary R, Dr. Judy, Sung, Kimberly B, Peter, Callie, Jessica D, Orange Julianne, Daniel M, Diane, we named the dog Indy, JJ Cathay, Dwayne H, 
Jonathan A, Dennis, Leslie H, Jeff S, Colin G, M. Tulin, Brant S, Jonathan K, Matt E, Plants in My Pants, Sean M, Sophie S, Connor H, Measure and Principle, Fregaria Pepolinoidea, <laughs> Outside Chronicles, Andrew C, Brandon R, Quixote, Robert P, Matt Max D, Jake M, Melissa Marie in Dusty, Arizona, Sarah S, Helen A, MD, Judy F, Ben C, Jane H, Doodle Dude 82, Kazzies, Esther C, John W, Mark V, Bethany, Rob M. Nice job. Thank you. <laughs> we had all trouble with uh, the giggles first time around. <laughs> yeah. Patrons, uh, on behalf of myself, Daniel, and Steve. And me. And Violet, we want to say a huge thank you for making this episode possible and all of our other episodes possible as well. We really do appreciate each and every one of you for your support. And we will see you next time. Goodbye. <laughs>